All right, welcome back to another episode of Pickups the Podcast, the podcast where we go back and unravel some of the greatest movies of all time. I am your host, John Michael Powell. I'm Zachary Ray Sherman. I'm Sean Harrison Jones. Hi, guys, and uh, today we're going to talk about the 1962 psychological horror thriller, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, directed by Robert Altridge, stars mm. uh, Betty Davis and Joan mm. Crawford, uh, also Victor Buono. Um, mm-hmm. Looks like Robin Williams. Uh, yeah, dude, my <laughs> Sabrina said the same thing watching the movie over my shoulder. Looks just like him. Victor Buono looks like a heavy set Robin Williams. Uh, anyway, this is a doozy of a film uh, with, I think, one of the most iconic, uh, one of the more iconic female villains uh, mm-hmm. of all time. Uh, that's going to be really fun to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But before we get to that, let's talk about the news of the week. I think we got a big one this week that, that we should discuss, and, and that's that... Um, that Warner Brothers has announced that they're going to strike a deal with Regal Cinema, uh, and their 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 whole notion, if you if you're not familiar, that uh, recently Warner Brothers had had made it known that they were going to make all of their 2021 releases come out the exact day uh, and date of their of their of their theatrical release on their platform for streaming. So the notion was they were going to release it in theaters and release it on streaming at the same time and do they have their own platform i think i, I think hbo max is okay. is the platform that warner has a deal with if i'm not mistaken i could be wrong mm-hmm. on that i'd have to look it up but um mm-hmm. anyway there's a lot of backlash i mean some of the most vocal backlash came from uh our, our old buddy christopher nolan uh you may know good old him. chris nolan. he loves the, loves the theaters right good old chris he, he is a cinephile he's a theater file and he was you know he mm-hmm. was naturally upset that he i think he felt that it was uh, the, the the beginning of the end for the theatrical experience. Uh, Denny Villeneuve was all. Uh, Denny Villeneuve uh, penned an essay. Did he? He did. Yeah, he was pretty vocal about it too. Yeah. yeah. Did Tarantino chime in or or PTA or any of those guys? If they did, I didn't see it. But I didn't see I, it. I'm sure they have something to say about it, especially Tarantino because he's got his own theater here in LA. Right. Um, though his theater doesn't really thrive on blockbuster like you know engagements. So to speak. Did Warner but, Brothers say this is a COVID protocol, so to speak, and we will resend it once once things change? So this, so so what's changed now is Warner Brother has come out just this week, uh, literally a couple of days ago, and said they've struck a new deal with Regal, and they're they're no longer gonna they're gonna go back to a forty five day window, great, where the movies will live in theaters for forty five days before going to streaming services. So now all that uproar and kind of vitriol that was coming out of Hollywood. Paid uh, off. It, well, yeah, it's uh, Warner Brothers has changed their stance, and so some are saying this is likely the death of that new scenario where um, you know movies go straight to streaming, and and maybe this is a new breath, a, a, a precursor to a fresh breath of air for the theater experience. Hallelujah! Well yes. done. I'm into it. Yeah, I mean, we we need our theaters. I mean, uh, yeah. there's no denying that these are our churches. This we, we, the future is here. We all look at our screens, but we need to go and congregate in the cinema, like we learned in Cinema Paradiso. Keep that shit alive. Yes. Yeah, this is a breath of fresh air and uh, hopefully uh, a harbinger of good things for mm-hmm. you know theater going experience. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, now Chris Nolan can get his um. His underwear is, it doesn't need to be wrapped around, you know, all, well, it's, you know, he's good. Yeah, what's funny is he, he, did you see that uh, 
Tenet <laughs> is going to premiere on HBO Max in, in, in May, and I think I read that he had referred to it as the as the worst streaming service. He did, and can I say something? I, like, look, I'm a fan of Chris Nolan, uh, yeah. in as much that I will watch his movies most of the time. I'm not a diehard Chris Nolan. Me neither. Um, you know, ah. I... I enjoy, uh, yeah, I guess we're all kind of on the same. I mean, yeah. I, I really enjoyed Memento, and I loved The mm. Prestige, and I loved uh, Insomnia. Those movies, that's like golden era for me, for Nolan. Um, I even loved liked his first movie, The Following, or Following. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Inceptions and the and the Batman movies. Um, God, that you know, World War II one I was so upset with. Uh, oh, I didn't see that. I oh, I, I, I really like do want to see it. It's on my list of things I, I didn't, to watch. I, 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 I didn't love it myself. You didn't love I, it? I was, no, I, I don't think I felt... Dunkirk, by the way. Dunkirk. I didn't, yeah, Dunkirk. I, I, I didn't kept feel calling as it Dun negative. Hype. Dun Hype. Dun yeah. Hype. There was a lot yeah, of no, hype. No, I didn't, I didn't feel as strongly about it as Zachary did, but I didn't, I didn't love it. I just kind of came out like, well, I've seen films like that before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's how I felt about his last few films. I will say this: yeah. Look, I like his films. He's a great filmmaker. He does somewhat come off as a spoiled brat in some of the in the conversations he has about cinema with the media. I mean, th- and this is somebody who is on his side. Right. <laughs> like, like right. I, I, I agree with thank him. goodness for him. Um, yeah. yeah, thank goodness for him. But he definitely does come off sounding a little bit. You know, the thing he said about HBO Max, I think is just flat out wrong. I think HBO Max yeah. is one of the best streaming services. I agree. I think he was upset and probably frustrated, which I totally understand. Yeah. Um, but honestly, if I'm picking one of the streaming services right now, my favorite is HBO Max. There's just, yeah. and this isn't a commercial for HBO Max. I, I love Netflix. I love Hulu. I love all of them. But I mean, look, the movie we, we discuss, we're discussing today, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, I jumped onto HBO Max and watched for free. Me too. Um, yeah. Not every streaming service can you go back and find a film from 1962 mm-hmm. that's kind of a cult classic that you can just kind of pop on. Yeah. HBO's yeah. got a great catalog of ca- classic films. So for us, the 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 what we're doing here in the cinephiles, um, HBO Max is great, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I think Nolan was pissed off, and I get it, but he got his wish. Uh, everything is going going back to a forty five day window, so we won the war. Yeah, I, I love it. I'm 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 on I'm more than on board. It's my preference. Well, it was the big question in the in the beginning of the pandemic. What is going to happen? And before the yeah. pandemic, you know, when we all stayed at home for movies. So I'm happy to see it. I mean, me too. I was before the pandemic and before I went up to Seattle to do this play. I was in the cinema five times, six times a week. I mean, it yeah. was really yeah. where I'd go in my free time. And, yeah, I uh, always say that cinema, the 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 movie theater is my church. Yeah, um, I'm, me too. I'm not a religious person. But uh, yeah, you know, me too. Uh, going to the theater three. was was my church. It gets harder when you have children, like I sure. do. You guys don't have children, yeah. So I will say there is a comfort level to being able to just pop on a movie at home, right? And I don't have to get a babysitter and deal with a kid, right? Um, it fits my lifestyle. Having said that, I still love going to the movie to see, mm-hmm. you know, to grab popcorn. Going to ArcLight here in mm-hmm. Hollywood, the Cinerama mm-hmm. Dome. My favorite. Like, That's my, the Dome. The Dome is my favorite movie theater. Yeah, it's it's just a totally unique experience. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, it, you know, it, it, it remind you know I'm gonna go go deep cut here, but uh, the reason I love the Dome so much is is because. Uh, it reminds me of Cinema 150. Remember that one, JMP? Oh my gosh, Cinema 150 uh, was, was this, this, this Little Rock. Time. This was a yeah. theater in Little Rock where Sean and I. But Cinema 150 was completely unique. And if you look it up, 
Cinema 150 is gone now, but it was Mm. one of very few theaters in the entire country that had a 180 degree movie theater screen. So you walked into the theater and it was like, it was like the dome. It was a, it was a, a, a circle that you sat in. But when you said the th- seats were kind of raised up high mm. um, and the screen stadium was kind seating. of stadium yeah. seating, kind of like a IMAX screen. But yeah. the, imagine, um, you know, an anamorphic screen wrapping around the side of your sure, face. Sure. So you could turn your head kind of left and right and it the screen wrapped beautiful. around your So did the front row begin at that kind of proscenium, you know, right at That's the right. right at the curve? Okay. It, wow. Well, it start, yeah, the, the theater height, the, the seating height was kind of right at the bottom of the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I've and never the, seen anything like it. Yeah, I mean, it even, even, like even it. the dome is like it. You know, that's where the, and they sh- they. I don't know if you caught this, John Michael, but for a time they did midnight screenings of Ooh. great older films. That's where I saw Raising Arizona for the first time. Wow, oh, that's wow. where I saw Pulp Fiction on the big screen for the first time. I mean, yeah. it was just a magical. Anyway, you know, do you know what I saw there when I was a kid? What did you see? I saw uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark there when I was nice. a kid. No like, way. Re-rele- it was. It would have been in the nineties. Yeah. And they, they did a run of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I must have been, like, 11 years old, and it was yeah. huge for me. I mean, it was, yeah. like, it was a, a religious experience for me. It had a huge impact. And that's that's what it makes me think of is, you know, if we if we do away with the, with the theatrical experience, I mean, you're talking about the loss of... Taking magic. Yeah. yeah, and they why they made films to begin with, you know, yeah. they didn't... They didn't make them to be consumed, you know. But but John Michael's got a great point about being, you know, being at home with with the kids, and I I I just don't want to ever lose the feeling of walking into a room and and watching it on such a bigger than life screen that right. you can really be immersed in it the magic won't go away i don't believe because my example is the drive-ins like we all that's how it began you take your car and your family in the car and there's this bigger than life screen that we all congregate beneath and watch and that is still happening it's a shame that it's at five percent or whatever low number it is but it's still thriving i've i participated this summer so i think our our theater is going to be good yeah 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 i mean in going even further back before movies even existed it was the theatrical experience Mm. in a theater Mm -hmm. and the stage and that that's still going strong and like mm-hmm. you know there is it's not as big a it's not as big a meal ticket as movie theaters as right. far as the entertainment spectrum goes right. but there's still a thirst for s- the stage experience so. okay. they they touch on that in at the beginning of this movie too we should say mm, yeah. The, yeah oh yeah the they vaudeville do era. yeah the vaudeville era yeah. what's her what's that song she sings i've written oh, a Jesus letter Christ. to daddy to daddy <laughs> to daddy <laughs> that, jesus christ i've written a letter to, <laughs> to daddy <laughs> whoa okay oh. all right everybody get ready for a uh, one hell of a ride i guess this is going to be our conversation about 1962 film whatever happened to baby jane Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Okay, 1962. Uh, it's a psychological horror thriller film. Uh, as mentioned before, it was directed by Robert Altridge. Stars Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in uh, very, very prominent, you know, big roles for their career. Uh, and and I'm, I don't know if you guys know about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, but they've, there's a lot, of, a, lot, a lot to talk about between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford that, that we're going to talk about. But for those that have not seen the movie, the, the quick pitch of what this movie is about is essentially uh, Betty Davis plays uh, a, a young, uh, when I say young, I mean, she's probably, what, 
10 years yeah. old. Yeah. Uh, and she is a vaudeville star, a young vaudeville uh, kind of Nin- singing. 1917. 1917. She's traveling with her family, um, singing on the stage, and she's a big vaudeville star. And uh, they sell, at these vaudeville shows, at the end of the show, they sell these Baby Jane dolls. And that's the all the rage in 1917. And Betty Davis's young 10-year-old self is, for lack of a w- better word, a psychopathic brat <laughs> um, who is enabled by her family to be the cash cow of the family. And the byproduct of that is she's a nightmare of a child. And nobody will put baby Jane in her place. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- on the other side, she has a sister. Um the sister's name is what's the sister's Blanche. name? For, Blanche. So Blanche, young Blanche, Blanche obviously. Dubois. No, <laughs> Blanche Dubois. Uh, different movie, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, young Blanche. The byproduct of her sister being this vaudeville star is she doesn't get any attention and she is left behind and kind of the second rung of the family. And and there's immediately in the opening of the movie you feel some tension between the two sisters. And we fast forward years later to where we find the two sisters uh, living kind of a Grey Garden-style life in their home. Uh, And Betty Davis's older self now, who is the fated star, we actually come to find out that Blanche grew into becoming the bigger star in film. And after Vaudeville died off, uh, uh, Baby Jane became left behind. And so now we find them, the movie finds them, living together in their older years. Um, And I don't want to give too much away, but... Betty Davis's character, uh, uh, Jane Hudson, has become the caretaker of her little sister. Uh, and the two don't get along very well at all. And the movie is basically chronicling the very um, ooh, volatile uh, relationship between the two sisters in this current living condition where they live in a house over in Hancock Park in, in Hollywood. And uh, the movie is uh, it's kind of a horror film is what I would describe it as. It was like a horror film for 1962. Mm-hmm. Maybe not horrific in the way that we we think of horror movies these days. There's been so much that's changed about the horror genre. And I think there's something really interesting to talk about this movie's time and place in history. Um, because for 1962, this movie had to be like pretty pretty fucking intense, right? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's why it's made it to this list. I mean, that's must the be. point. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the only thing that I was thinking of talking about. I mean, well, today. I've got a lot to talk about, but I think the first thing that we're probably all going to want to talk about, and I think it's what most people will think about when they think about this movie, is fucking Betty Davis, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. What a yeah. What a tour de force performance. Yes. Uh, yeah, she was incredible. Dude, but, the second she comes on, the second she comes into frame, and she's the older. Yeah. Woo! Like yeah, she you, is. You, you are frozen in your seat in this close-up. She's sitting at a table, like drinking, and the way that I'm guessing she insisted her makeup to look is so compelling and off that you're just drawn to it. But what Betty Davis does is share her soul in a dramatic way that is still believable. And you know, I was just telling my sister this morning, like Betty Davis. Well, it's a long story, but she's just one of the fucking greats. And this movie is her tour de force. I mean, she's, you can't deny this is the epitome of acting. Like, it's, she is the golden statue. I mean, she's, she's top notch. Well, speaking of golden statue, an interesting side note that I learned from this movie. So, 
Do you know that Betty Davis was the first actor, man or woman, actor or actress, who oh, wow. was nominated for 10 Academy Awards? Whoa. I did she not was, know that. She was nominated for 11 in her lifetime, uh, but she became the first actor of any uh, gender to to be nominated for 10. She was nominated. She won Best Actress for this movie yeah. um, because she's her performance is unbelievably psychopathic. Like, yeah. I honestly think this performance is up there in the pantheon of like greatest all yeah. time. Um, you know, it's one of the best performances. It reminded me of Gina Rowland's uh, mm. in uh, A Woman, Woman Under the Influence. Yeah. It had that kind of same tour of, I mean, tonally, to two totally different films and two totally different performances. Yeah. But it reminded me of that kind of tour de force, like benchmark performance for a career. But also with the Academy Award thing, can you believe this? This is just a side note. And it shocked me. So Betty Davis was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Only... Two other actresses have ever been nominated for more. One actor has been nominated for more. Uh, Catherine Hepburn was nominated for 12. Jack Nicholson was nominated for 12. Hmm. Okay? So Jack Nicholson, Catherine Hepburn are n share number two on the most Academy Award nominations. Betty Davis at 11 is, is number four. Do you know who is number one? Would you guess? Who is would it you Meryl? guess? It's Meryl Streep, but do you know how many? 21. Oh my god. 21 nominations that Meryl Streep has been nominated for and the next closest is Jack Nicholson and Katherine Hepburn at 12. Well, there's good reason for it. I mean, did you guys <laughs> did you guys see that Soderbergh movie on HBO that just came oh, out? Yeah. Of, I mean, she's she's Streep is so fucking compelling. Streep is so fucking compelling. I don't think there would be a Meryl Streep without a Betty Davis. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I mean, and there's a famous quote that Betty Davis has do you guys know that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford hated each other, right? In right. real life. Yeah. I did know other. that. Yeah. And and I'll talk I'll give you guys the lowdown on the history because there's a lot of juicy stuff there that leads historically to the making of this film. Mm. It, it's an important for us in 2021 and who grew up in the nineties watching movies, we if you were alive in the thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties this was a huge movie because it pitted two right. of the most famous actresses who, it was well known they hated each other in the same movie oh, so together. That was already in, was that already in progress when they when they made this film? Oh, years, 30 years in the progress. I'm guessing it started from Crawford's side saying, I'm not a very good actress and this other woman <laughs> is the best. That's, and, well, okay, I mean, well, and my point is there's a famous Betty Davis quote that says, uh, you know, she says, Joan Crawford is a, a movie star and I am an actress. Well, and um, this, this movie is the perfect, <laughs> it serves it up in, in steaming for you. Joan Crawford is so tired and boring and what I hate about this movie. Is, uh, there's a lot I don't like about this movie, to be honest. Yeah. Um, there's a lot I really do like about the movie. Yeah, me um, too. But let's go into, okay, since we teed it up, let's go in, let me give you guys the lowdown on the history of Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Okay. So it starts in the mid-30s. So Joan Crawford uh, is actually already a, a Hollywood star by the time Betty Davis comes to Hollywood. She's from the East Coast. She comes to Hollywood um, kind of five years after Joan Crawford's already established. And Joan Crawford at the time is married to um, uh, Douglas Fairbanks. Hmm. So Douglas Fairbanks, uh, big Hollywood actor. He's like the George Clooney of his time, right? Um, big movie star. Uh, and... Betty Davis finally gets, she's done a couple roles. Uh, she, she did a movie, I can't remember the name of the movie, but she plays a really surly kind of a waitress. And she kind of stole the show as a second, as the second build character. And so at the time, 
I think she's with Warner Brothers. Remember at this time in, 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 in film history, actors got tied to studios. They weren't yeah. allowed to make movies outside of, outside of that studio. So she, I think she has a deal with Warner. Yeah, because she famously had a contentious relationship with Jack Warner, head of Warner Brothers. Mm. But so, she, so they finally give her her movie. It's like, I don't know, 1937 at the time. And Warner Brothers spends a lot of money to run the press for this movie in the LA Times and in the newspapers to say, here's Betty Davis, she's going to be a star, we're going to make her a star, right? And it's her big outing. So Joan Crawford, who at this time sees Betty Davis as a threat coming up in in the movie world, she is already in the process of divorcing Douglas Fairbanks. So she waits... Until the day Warner Brothers releases oh, wow. in the paper this mo- Betty Davis movie, she waits for that day to announce that she's divorcing Douglas Fairbanks because she knows because it will be the big jealous. She's jealous, <laughs> and she knows it will be the big gossip, and it will take wow. up the newspaper. So the result is Betty Davis's news release gets pushed to the back page of the entertainment section of right. the paper, and and Joan Crawford's divorce takes over the news. R- the domino effect of that is Betty Davis's first movie is a bomb oh, i think no. it's out it's out of theaters in a week and, it, and it's looked at as a bomb so that begins betty davis's ire for joan crawford she she blames mm. her but the thing that really took it to the next level is a few years later betty davis is in love with this actor i can't remember his name they did a movie together uh he's got a very french kind of distinguished uh parisian name i can't remember his name but uh she's in love with him and joan crawford finds out and she steals him from her and marries wow. him. Wow. And like this becomes a massive schism for them. They start hating each other. I mean like a big schism. Like even so much as that Betty Davis did an interview in like 1987 and was like still bitter about it. I'm mm-hmm. talking 50 years later was still <laughs> bitter about it and like brought it up and said I will never forgive her. But that begins a string of you know uh rivalry between the two and over the course of the next 10 years from the 30s to the mid 40s betty davis racks up the academy awards she wins she gets nominated i think at one point she was nominated six years in a row five six years in a row for best actress and joan crawford of course becomes horribly jealous of her i I think for years they're at two different studios like I think Joan Crawford's at RKO or something, and um, Betty Davis is at Warner. Well, then somewhere along the way, Warner signs Joan Crawford. Mm. And so Joan Crawford and Betty Davis are at the same studio. So were they forced to do it? Like uh, whoever pinned them together? Basically, they were, they were, there were a few movies in a row that they tried to get them pitted mm, together, wow. and Joan Crawford and Betty Davis wanted nothing to do with each other. And it finally came together on Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Sure. And Betty Davis only agreed to do the movie, funnily enough, said this to the director, Robert Altridge, said, I will only do the movie if you promise to me that you're not sleeping with Joan Crawford. Oh, my God. And famously said that. And she said it not because I care about their personal life. They can go have sex all they want. But I didn't want Aldridge giving her more close-ups than me. Right. <laughs> Right. So that pretty much describes the contentious relationship between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. It's and the kind of level and, of petty I aspire to. Well, when you <laughs> see this film, you see, I see Betty Davis just getting a kick out of beating the hell out of Joan yeah. Crawford. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's really funny when you look at it in the context of this this horrible relationship between the two. It's like, it really is a wet dream for Betty Davis to just yeah. get an opportunity to pummel. And from what I understand, they were on set shooting. And at one point, Joan Crawford was like, you got to get a double because she's going to really hurt me. Mm. And Betty Davis was kind of like, and I think one take, there was one close up where they couldn't get a double because it was a close up. And Betty Davis 
thwapped her on the, the head, dude, and hurt Jeez. her. Had to get Jeez. stitches. It was brutal, man. <laughs> now, the result of that is like, now, Zach, I mean, you said it. Joan Crawford is a little bit of a, a limp noodle in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of that is her role and, and the way her but character is But most of written. it is a lack of talent. You know, I have not watched a lot of Joan Crawford uh, or Betty Davis movies for that matter. I mean, I've seen, you know, a few Betty Davis films here and there, but I've yeah. never sought out Joan uh, Crawford as an actress. I mean, you, you guys must know about the story about her and Mommy Dearest and being abusive to her children, right? Crickets, no. Mm-hmm. No, I don't, you guys I don't, aren't. I don't. So Joan Crawford was famously abusive to her children. There's a Eesh. book that came out. Her adopted daughter wrote uh, that she was beaten by her. There's a famous movie. Faye Dunaway, uh, Faye Dunaway played her, right? Faye Dunaway mm. played her and Mommy yeah. Dearest. And, and there's a famous, you know, she used a coat hanger to beat her children. And Jeez. It's brutal. Oh, Jesus. She was, look, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, very noted for being driven almost sociopathic actresses well, but joan <laughs> put some of that sinister energy that's clearly within your character into your work man but because nothing's there it's just stale tired blah and you watch davis just outshine her in every moment like you said just pummel her but she's she's acting circles around the woman who's just a limp noodle it's i mean the the minute did you guys notice like betty davis the, the minute they introduced her did you notice the way her she shuffles across the kitchen floor? Oh, no. Just the way wow. she drags her feet. Yeah. Sabrina and I were talking. We were like, oh, my God, it's so annoying. Mm. And it's such a clear choice by Betty Davis. Mm. The posture of her character and the way she just shuffles through the house. Yeah. And she's got this smeared makeup. She almost looks like a... She almost looks like a like a, a mime or something. Her yeah. makeup is so drastically caked on. And yeah, it made me think of like Greek theater at times. When yeah. the, the way the light would hit her. But other little nuances of Davis are really amazing. And as like an actor perception, I watched her in a wide take that was held for a while, and she just played with her fingers throughout this. Yes, like, minute, I know the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, this she's minute She's sitting take. on the bed, like yep, getting exactly. mad at her sister. And it's it's kind of a tired little moment, but she's 100% alive, and she's doing this thing with her fingers that you know she just does in every take and they can't cut around it if they want it to be more melodramatic she's just that's the brilliance of her man she the thing i took away from this well there was a lot of things but one is like this is this is stage acting in cinema like just really beautifully you you can't ignore the uh, the craft here and you see yeah. somebody who's really talented and you see somebody who's just resting on being a star you know it was it's kind of it was a letdown to watch Crawford I just was fucking bored with her she ruined the movie for me I I don't know that the movie is that well directed Mm. to begin with there's a lot of things that I I think this movie lives in in an interesting space historically because it's 1962 when this movie comes out it feels like a movie that was made in 1945 Um, it just feels but I can also at certain times feel it's it's at this time period where you feel the director wanting to be more independent minded. He goes yeah. handheld at the yeah. end and like it gets those moments are really interesting. When even from the beginning, I remember stopping it two minutes in and looking up Aldrich and, and, and clicking watch list on a lot of his films on Letterboxd because I thought this is really charged, interesting vision. The photography was really stark and I think strong. the photography helped him a lot because yeah. the way everyone's top lit and it looks, it the shadows make people look horrific. It's yeah. a really contained movie. The whole movie yeah. takes place in a house. It's not about scares. No. It's not about, it's just gets in your bones. Moment to moment, you're watching her 
do terrible things to Joan Crawford. And it just makes you sick. You're like, want her to get out of this house. It's claustrophobic. And she's the only reason you keep going because it's full of exposition. It's full of tired music cues that are ridiculous. Uh, This movie is two hours, 12 minutes. It needs to be an hour and 40. Yeah. Tops. There's so much so much air in this movie. The music tells you every emo. Yeah. It, it's like there'll be moments where the camera's not even moving, and the music is. It goes through three different yeah. movements of emotion, and it's so annoying. And I, I think this comes back to Aldrich, and I really do think Aldrich deserves a little bit of the blame because I think mm. it's it's not that well directed. It feels like it's it's tugging at some interesting things, but I don't think it ever fully lives up to the conceit because the conceit is really brilliant. But but I think Aldrich deserves, or whoever casts this movie and put it together, I, no, I think he does deserve respect for the way he handles actors. Like even the family next door, the mom and the daughter, yep. that was some That's really tuned in, alive, non-bullshit stuff. You know, when the, the daughter's like reacting to the commercial, turn this crap off. Like that was so fresh and, and wonderful. Like that's part of him, I think. I agree. There were moments where I saw independent cinema coming. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, this is Cassavetes. This yeah. is Cassavetes before Cassavetes, but it's not quite there yet. There is a great moment with the mom and the daughter when they're like, we should kill her kind of thing. And the, the mom's lighting a cigarette in her mouth and then kind of like chuckles in this weird maniacal way that was clearly not scripted. It was just fresh and weird and bizarre. But Mr. Flag, love- that guy's fucking great. And like that, he was really good. And like, the, there was some really cool camera moves. I remember the moment that it's all about Davis, but when it comes down to that spotlight thing and it throws back to her being a child and she does that whole throwback performance to Ooh. being, a, I mean, that's- That's a great scene. I will not forget that. Yeah, that to, me, yeah like, that to me is this is the center point of the film. That to me was it, the yeah. only, I didn't- what do you? What yeah, were you yeah. feeling, well, Sean? Okay. What, what do you feel, Sean? You, you're clearly like just. I didn't yeah, fucking okay, like didn't it like one it. goddamn bit. Um, just well. to put it harshly. Uh, yeah, Betty Davis was good, but it's you know, and I don't, I don't know if I'm. I, the, what I was gonna say, and I, you know, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but it's really the only thought that I had was, well, I need to imagine seeing this in 1962. This is probably the first time, in a major way, a tale of twisted sibling rivalry was shown in this kind of way and not Mm -hmm. to mention what John Michael just told you know that the audience is going in with this actual history between these actresses you know um uh you know so I'm sure there was a lot of you know it was it was fairly cutting edge at the time um it just uh you know I'm I'm probably just not the audience for it it's it's I I didn't like it I I had a hard time hard time getting through it to be honest can I ask you guys something because this is something I thought about do we have a responsibility to judge movies based on the time they came out or do we judge them based on our time period and our breadth mm. like because my point is if you take away misery you take away Blair Witch Project you take away slasher movies that by the way like uh, like uh there are you know korean films that are as gory that are horror those movies didn't exist back then so if i'm putting myself in 1962 and i look at this movie i'm more willing to give it a pass and say it it is a monumental moment for for this movie but if i'm looking at it 
as but it's 2021. Only it's only for elements that it's monumental and works because it's really flawed even for that time because four years later, yes, four years is a long time, but four years later we have Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's the same black and white story stuck in a house, familial drama, dips into melodrama, and that movie is fucking perfect. And and like that was only four years later. Well, And like, this is two years after Psycho. And Psycho right. is a masterpiece. So I think, John Michael, like there's movies made in the mid 30s and early 40s that are as raw and beating as movies of now, but we have to dig for them. And 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 I think this was I gave this 3.5 when we're not, I'm not wrapping up, but like only because of the photography in Betty Davis. The rest of it was just tired exposition and weak scripting and a really soft noodle co-lead that that ruined the film but but if those things were different it would have been it would have jumped out at you and said this movie is a masterpiece even for the time or just as good as today yeah the moments just never i just wasn't affected at all i just didn't you know and, and by the time they get to the and i won't spoil it but by the time we get to that ending where you know what that big revelation there is uh, a there is a um, there is a uh, a, a reveal. It in just did, there's it a just, hook. Nah, I agree. Nah, it didn't nah, work. And do you nah. know why it didn't work? And this is why I go back to the direction. I can see there's something good in the sauce here. Yeah. If they had cut this movie differently, yeah. mm-hmm. if the score was different and yeah. the pace and the rhythm of the movie was different, it could be a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. But there is just a little bit loosey goosey stuff here and there that feels like. The direction isn't as tight as it needs to be because the 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 Betty Davis performance. Oh yeah. If you lean if you lean more into Betty Davis and you lean into the cinematography and the look of mm-hmm. this movie, yeah, you gotta win. I mean, yeah. it, it yeah. could be one of the best movies of all time. Yeah, I agree. But the I thought the pacing was awful. I mean, I mm. I was I was I, you could have taken out a good forty five minutes of. I was truly bored at times too. I was bored too. Yeah. In bits bits. Yeah. Even even the moments that where they were trying to be unnerving you know like having the the bird and the it just didn't it just wasn't well executed to me it didn't it didn't make me you know when i saw the stills beforehand i thought i thought it was going to be creepy i thought that i was going to feel unsettled and i didn't feel that for a second i mean you know it's just my opinion but i i don't know i just didn't think the execution matched its potential well i i totally agree with that i mean i felt that i felt it it definitely, dude, two hours and 12 minutes for a story that doesn't leave a room, basically. It's just, it, there's not enough meat there to warrant the the languid kind of like rhythm. Um, I didn't articulate it so w- clearly before, but w- seeing these theatrical, like literally stage acting elements is really a joy in this movie, though. Like the stuff between what Mr. Flagg and Betty mm-hmm. Davis, like... That's what I was hearkening back to last week with Alfredo and Salvatore and Toto. Like two great actors is such a joy. It's the why I love movies, and it's the you know the basis of storytelling. Like we talked in the news segment, you just reflecting life. But you get Davis and you get that guy together, and that guy is just feeding off of her, and every little thing he's doing is really alive. I yeah. I think there's Dude, definitely there's a, there's a version of this movie, by the way, that is Flag and her. Yeah having this relationship and you don't know what's in that room upstairs. Mm-hmm. What if you what, what if you made this whole movie? That's creepy. See, that <laughs> is creepy. You keep seeing Betty Davis go into this room mm-hmm. and she's this weird old lady that has 
clearly psychotic in ways mm-hmm. and she keeps going up to this room and flag is like what is in that room mm-hmm. and the movie is about flag trying to figure out what the hell is that's in that room. way better that's way better uh, you know i yeah I, I i agree with zach i mean to me my favorite scene is when he plays the piano and she you know she's reliving this moment no, the best scene. Yeah, and yeah. that's clearly the best scene and uh the first time they meet through that gate and they're and they're yeah. sizing each other up and and they're neither of them are what the other expected and you you get all of that without with just their eyes i mean you but, know that that's the best part to me of the of the film and that's where aldrich was independently minded it was kind of these golden moments of inspiration we go whoa this is really fresh and exciting and then i think it was like joan coming back in and goes oh, no no this is the way it's supposed to be i'm some tired no son so, th- of, so that's a, so th- i would say that's a point for Aldrich, like you know, in, in terms of in one terms point of, for Aldrich. Yeah, one point. He's he's outscored right now, sixty-seven to two, to <laughs> Betty Davis. Betty Davis is winning this picture. Betty Davis definitely won. Joan Crawford's not even off the starting she, block. Yeah. She's at zero. She fell over right when the gun fired. <laughs> yeah. The gun shot her, and she's trying to survive throughout the performance. Poor Joan Crawford. Not poor Joan Crawford. She beat her yeah, children. Yeah, poor Joan yeah. Crawford. I was about to say. Uh, Joan's only good moment at the end on the beach. Before, how about that final weird shot that pulls back? It was like, this is so like LSD 60s trip in like a weird black and white film. But um, but her little monologue at the end, you know, our turn, our reveal, whatever. I actually was compelled during that scene. And it was like the one time Joan would quit pushing an agenda and a feeling and a tone and brooding and just, I mean, she was still acting, but something there had me. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. And I did, I did, I will say I did love the, the, you know, I didn't care at this point. I was way checked out, but uh, I did love the bookend nature of having uh, um, Jane, uh, you know, have, have an audience again, except it was, it was, you know, in a completely different way. Yeah, the last shot of the movie is is really good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the choice. Yeah. And to me, that mo- that's a good example of a moment where I felt Aldridge's punk rock sure. kind of totally, like, yeah. totally yeah. independent voice coming through. It was handheld. It was weird. It was bizarre. It turned into this strange culty kumbaya yeah. moment. Yeah. If only the whole um, film before it was good. Well, <laughs> whatever happened if only to the making whole, a good if movie? If only the whole film leaned into that that's feeling, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. then it would have oh, been, been one of the best movies. Yeah. It would have been a masterpiece. 100%. Yeah. Okay, so clearly we don't think it's a masterpiece. We heard Zach say, you, Zach, you gave it a three and a half. 3.5, yeah. 3.5. Sean, what did you give it? Two and a half. Two and a half. Uh, I'm going to give it a four. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to buck the trend. I think Betty Davis is, mm. it's one of my favorite performances I've, I've ever seen. Yeah, really? Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to give it a four just because of Betty Davis's yeah, tour de force. Yeah. Um, Fair and enough. I think there are elements that are really good. It's not without its faults. Um, but for me, I will never forget this movie. Right. That's, that's, that's the most yeah. important thing. I mean, that's when you know you've seen a, a lasting work of art. Yeah. All right, that uh, does it for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I think we uh, covered our bases there. Betty Davis forever. Tune in uh, next week. We are going to be watching the... uh, What year did this movie come out? This movie came out in 1970. 
Uh, a black-clad gunfighter embarks on a symbolic quest in an Old West version of Sodom and Gomorrah. That movie is El Topo, directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. How do you say his last name? I think that's right, Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky, that's right. Um, going to be a wild one because Lots Jodorowsky, of... from what I under- I have not seen any Jodorowsky, but I hear he's out there. Art forward. Uh, yeah. yeah. Surrealistic. Yeah. Mm. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, all right. Until next week, that'll be that. Is there anything you uh, guys want to recommend before we go? Anthony Campos's Christine. Uh, talk about Betty Davis and, and performance of a lifetime. What uh, What is her name? Christine um, Hall. Uh, uh, Oh, Rebecca Hall. That's Rebe- right. Rebecca Hall. Re- what Rebecca Hall. Hall does is is right there with Betty Davis. I, I think that's 2020 version of, of the, the Pinnacle Man. Okay, there are a couple things I wanted to mention. Something that I think is really cool that you should go check out. Uh, Alamo Draft House. I'm not exactly sure where it is, uh, which theater it is. You have to go to, go to drafthouse.com backslash dazed. And they are rerunning Dazed and Confused. Really? Oh, yeah. Nice. yeah. And, yeah. and, and they are going to do a digital um, uh, Q&A experience. Jack Whoa. Black is going to host it. Is and Linklater Matthew, showing up? Linklater, Matthew McConaughey, and Parker Posey are all going to reunite Great. Um, nice. for this. And um, that, I mean... I go back and I watch and it still holds up. The other thing I wanted to mention is just a really quick call out. I'm not a huge comic book movie, superhero movie guy. That's not really my fare. Um, But the Suicide Squad trailer, uh, the new- Oh, did it it come out? It came out I haven't seen it. This morning and it's worth seeing. And I think it's really interesting because for those that don't know the story, there was a Suicide Squad movie that came out a few years ago, which I did not see. I had no desire to see. Um, just not my thing. But David Ayer directed that movie, uh, Suicide Squad. It bombed. Did terribly. I like to the point where Warner, I think, or I think it was a Warner movie, was yeah. going to kill the franchise completely. Yeah. Well, then the whole James Gunn, Guardian of the Galaxy fallout because of his Twitter mishap. So Gunn leaves and goes to make his own Suicide Squad movie. And the trailer just dropped of the movie. And it's a really interesting example. If you watch those two trailers side by side, like again, I didn't watch the Suicide Squad movie, but I know James Gunn's style. I've seen Guardians. I actually really liked Guardians. I love James Um, Gunn. And I like James Gunn. He's very campy and he's got a style. Yeah. The Suicide Squad movie, it's immediate. You're like, oh, this is a totally different movie in the hands of a director who's very uh, adept, who's got a style and who has a, a tone and a voice. Um, I don't know. It was, it was interesting and, and, and worth checking out, I think. Cool. All right. We'll tune in next week. Uh, until then, you can catch us on Letterboxd. Our Letterbox is uh, at Pickups Podcast is our Letterbox. You go to Letterbox.com. I think we pumped it enough. Yeah. You can find Letterbox.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm John Michael underscore Powell. Zach, Sean, where are you guys? Instagram, Zach R. Sherman. Twitter, Zachary Ray Sherman. Sean, Instagram.com. Uh, at Sean Harrison Jones, Vimeo.com forward slash Sean Harrison Jones. Boom. I think that's the quickest outro we've ever done, and I like it. We love you all. We love you all. We love you all. We'll see you next week. Uh, let's pick it up next week, fellas.